0: There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcast at DubaiEye1038.com. Literary Moment. Milestones in Literary History.
1: So it's the 20th of April today, but do you know what's coming up on the 23rd of April? I might do. Am I allowed to give it away? You <laughs> are a allowed secret? to give it away. It's World Book Day. Hooray. Um, also English Language Day, apparently, and the death and birth anniversary of William Shakespeare, playwright and source of joy, but also pain (laughs) for some students during their GCSEs. So we, we speak a lot about Shakespeare. Every year it comes around, we do something like we talk about language from his plays. This was something that I discovered that I had never heard of before that I thought was a little bit mad. And I'd like
2: to share it with you. What is the strangest Shakespeare adaptation that you can picture in your mind? (laughs) <laughs> it's not as good as this one. I actually saw one over the summer where they had gender swap. So all the female roles were played by men and vice versa, which was interesting. But this is better. So can you imagine King Lear, but with sheep?
1: <laughs> because this actually happened, I kid you not, in London 2015, a London stage, an abridged version of Shakespeare's great tragedy, King Lear, was performed by one man and several sheep it was written by missouri williams who was fed up of complacent and dull adaptations of shakespeare so she decided that she would do something a bit different <laughs> i think a it's lot not, different. it's, it's <laughs> not a bit different. it goes beyond that i feel so the stage basically was a sheep pen and all the characters are sheep king lear cordelia all of them sheep <laughs> lear is a sheep
2: a mad sheep um yes
1: Clearly. Um, So the way that they do it is it's a 30 minute production. It's meant to be tragic, but also hilarious. And the actor who is playing the director becomes increasingly frustrated throughout the play that the actors are in fact sheep and therefore not acting. And so he progressively becomes the King Lear
2: character. I wonder, did it only run for one show or did it have a, you know? I don't know. (laughs) I was slightly
1: distracted by the fact that it was a play involving sheep, Rachel, so...
2: Well, I wonder if it, it carried on, whether the sheep's performances improved <laughs> over time. I doubt it. <laughs> um, so there was a wonderful review that basically
1: described the 30-minute production as both tragic and wholly ridiculous. That sounds I think about right. Is a nice way of putting it. And now I, I want to know if there's anybody in Dubai who'd dare to do something like that. I doubt it.
2: You never know. You never know. Book News,
0: your latest literary roundup.
1: Okay so here's there's a lot going on over the next few weeks culture, culture culturally and literary wise it would help if i could actually say words so the emirates literature foundation is curating the cultural and professional program as well as special events at the abu dhabi international book fair from the 24th to the 30th of April and it's happening at the Abu Dhabi National Exhibition Centre. So authors include Ben Okri, Eugene Rogan, Rachel Hamilton, <laughs> yes. Ali Sparks, Saru Briley, Curtis Jobling, Sarah McIntyre, Carmine Gallo and Ziadine Yousafzai just to name a few who I'm massively excited about. It's a great lineup it really is. Um, so if you'd like to find out more information about the program when things are happening you can go to adbookfair.com and they have all sorts of pdf versions of the program for you to have a look through also if you want a little bit of fun there's an entirely improvised play in the style of jane austen happening on monday based on audience suggestions at the courtyard playhouse which sounds like a real my audience
2: suggestion would be use sheep
1: yeah I don't think that that would go anywhere really something that the Emirates Literature Foundation has been busy with for a while now as well is we organize a regular program of author visits to prisons which has been very successful so far and there have actually been a few stories internationally about the power of literature in difficult circumstances. I know there was a particular story that caught your eye.
2: Yes, there was uh, BBC News stories that caught my attention. It was, it was a few weeks ago now, but it was basically about how reading bedtime stories helps certain prisoners to survive the prison experience. And they focused on one man. He had a two-year sentence and he was away from his small children. And he was feeling increasingly kind of isolated and cold and detached from them. And it talks about the way that sometimes uh, prison has like several kind of elements to it one being rehabilitation and one just making sure that people can re-enter society at the end and this man was talking about the fact that you know he'd had experiences like this before and he would come out of prison and then he would go back to his old ways and back to his friends whereas what he really wanted to do was reconnect with his family and so this wonderful woman called Sharon Berry founded this organization called Storybook Dads and this came about because she was volunteering in prisons for another reason and speaking to prisoners she heard so many stories of how they missed their children, how upset they were that they were missing kind of big events like birthdays, Also, she would see people come away from telephone conversations with their families in tears, and she wanted to help people reconnect. And the way she did it was she encouraged these prisoners to read stories on video, which they turned into CDs or DVDs that they could send home. And then they would, I mean, one guy talked about how he did the Gruffalo, someone else did Marvel Comics, and they would send these home to their children. And so their children would have, I mean, one of the kids, I think, I'm trying to find the quote here, but he said that it felt like he had his dad back in his bedroom with him. it was so sweet and there were tales of other children taking these recordings into show and tell because the the article talks about the fact that sometimes it's hard for children to understand where their parent has gone and if they have this connection they still feel loved they still know how much they're being thought of and it was just it's a really lovely idea and then the prisoners some of the ones that were involved would then get more involved helping edit the videos and put things together and it just seemed like such a lovely idea so I I enjoyed that article.
1: It sounds like from This basic idea, it turned into
2: like a whole big project for them, something to focus on. It began in Dartmoor Prison, as I understand. And I think I've got this right. I think it's spread to 100 prisons at the moment and that they're creating five or six thousand stories a year. They've also extended to become storybook mums and they're trying to get into the female prisons too. And it just sounds like one of those things. It's just like a small idea at the beginning and then it works so well that it kind of mushrooms into something. Even better. So Storybook Dads is what it's called? Storybook Dads was the original organisation, yes. And then they're they're trying to introduce Storybook Mums as well.
1: Do you know if it's anywhere else? Does it mention that in the article? Or is it just in the UK at the moment?
2: The article is, it's a BBC article, so it focuses on the UK. But it's such a good idea that I would be surprised if it hasn't been picked up elsewhere. I know there are informal versions of a similar thing. So hopefully it will become global. It seems like an absolutely fantastic idea. You've obviously got to create the studio, but they were saying, you know, in the beginning they just had one empty cell and used that. So I think it's, you know, it's something that's quite easy to create. And it's something that has started small. Yes. Mm, Excuse me. It's something that
1: started small and can clearly expand and and carry on. Yeah, and it helps so many different people. It helps the kids, it helps the prisoners, it helps everybody. Did you have, I think you had some more
2: information about the whole prison side of... Yeah, it's something that interests me a lot. I worked in prisons for a while when I was living back in the UK. And one of the things that you notice is um, that... I've got the stats somewhere, let me find them nearly 50% of the people in prison have a literacy level at or below what is needed for successful employment that's an incredible statistic and they also have information such as a lot in female prisons a lot of the women in those prisons have had some sort of brain damage in the past and it makes you think about prisoners in another way, you know, not just as these awful criminals, you know irredeemable, but the fact that there may be reasons for what they've done and if people can come in and help them and if books can come in and help them. Because we talk so much about the power of reading. We talk about, have you heard of the Matthew effect, this idea that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the smart get smarter. And this thing about if if children begin young with reading, then reading is easier and easier for them throughout their lives. Whereas for these prisoners, they may have been read to as children, perhaps never got to the point where they could read to themselves. And by introducing those skills that can help them understand how empathy works and, you know, various huge advantages of reading. I just think it makes a massive difference when they come out.
1: Um, something else that I neglected to mention: if you'd like to join a book club and talk about a great book, we're actually meeting for the Festival Book Club on Wednesday, the first of May, at seven thirty p.m. If you want more information about where and th- where that's happening and how you can join the book club, you can go to ElfDubai.org. And we're talking actually about Not Bad People by Brandy Scott, Dubai Eyes very
2: own Brandy Scott. Ooh. Do you know what the book is about? Uh, Only vaguely. It's on my shelf to read, but I have had so much recently. But I know it's brilliant. I've heard so many people say fantastic things about it. So I'm full of anticipation.
1: Basically, it's about three best friends engaging in what seems to be a harmless act, but which instead results in tragedy. And that's very vague, but that's because I don't really want to spoil anything. Um, But yeah, so buried secrets,
2: you know... Things happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Things happen. I really don't want to spoil it. I'm going to have to leave it there. So we're meeting to discuss that. You have to
2: go along to the book club to find out.
1: On Wednesday, the 1st. of May. Have you read anything brilliant lately Rachel?
2: Oh gosh I've read huge amounts of good things but a lot of them are we're going to talk about later in the show yeah, so don't I don't really want to give it. any spoilers. I'm trying to think if I've read anything unshow related. What I've done actually is we'll be talking about Neil Schusterman later and what happened is I read one of his books for the show and they are so fantastic that I've just been reading his whole back catalogue this week. He is a great discovery I think yes. of the week.
0: The big question.
2: Our big question today is
1: publicity stunts in the book world a good thing question mark <laughs> an interesting thing an interesting thing for sure and the reason we're talking about this is because of a, a book from 1979 called masquerade by kit williams which if you were growing up around that I, time you
2: weren't but i know
1: <laughs> you will probably remember but even though i wasn't it's in the news again because it's the 40th anniversary this year and they're doing celebrations for the book um, in the town where it was created by Kit Williams. It was the source of all of the excitement and because they're celebrating it, it's back in the news again. And it it kind of obsessed the nation, didn't it? It really Rachel? did. I
2: was I was small, I was only about five or six, but even I can remember that everybody was completely fascinated with this puzzle and how it could be solved. There was a lot of media coverage as well at the time. So really interesting stuff. So I... Gascoigne, I think, was promoting it, wasn't he? Who was that? He was um he was a sort of presenter and quiz showy type host at the time, kind of the Graham Norton of the time. I don't know, but yeah, he was a big figure and he got very he got behind. I think he helped bury the treasure, if I'm right. Oh yes, yes, I think he did. Um, so it it's a
1: little bit of a bittersweet story, but I'm going to start at the kind of more exciting beginning of the story. So in 1979, an illustrated fairy story called Masquerade by Kit Williams becomes a literary phenomenon um, and it featured illustrated puzzles that led to buried golden treasure that's why everyone was so excited yes. so it was only he who knew where it was and this other Bambergascoing <laughs> Um so have a listen to Kit talk about the hidden treasure and why he wrote the book
0: How long do you think it will be before someone finds your piece of treasure? It might be a week it might be a thousand years I don't know I've, I've no way of testing it and, only me and one other person knows where it is and uh, only me knows how to do it. I am not interested in puzzles and never was interested in puzzles. It just happened to be the solution to how I could create this whole idea. I thought, what I must do is find a way to make people look and look and look again. And if I said, this is art, you know, you must really look at it because it's art, that turns people off. But if I said, there's some sort of puzzle here that you must work out, they would be looking at art through the back door. They would they would they would be taken to it a different
1: way. Kit Williams there talking about his book Masquerade, which in itself without the treasure and the excitement is a wonderful story. It's about the journey of Jack Hare, who loses a jewel that he's been entrusted to li- to deliver from the moon to the sun, which is a lovely
2: idea. It was absolutely beautiful. So I had this book, and it was a really lovely. But we didn't ever follow the. Tr- I think at six, I probably wouldn't have managed to crack the puzzle. But it, it was stunning as well. You know, it, it had it hit all the levels of interest.
1: And also, the puzzles were genuinely difficult. It wasn't an easy thing. No, incredibly to solve. complex. Um, so I think that was part of it as well. Also, the prize, which was. 18 karat gold hair was valued at it something like thousands, five thousand pounds at the time so i think if we're talking about publicity stunts that work for books yeah, having several thousand pounds maybe <laughs> or having Durham some yeah. gold treasure at the end will certainly help you but i don't think it was just that and if you listen to a few more interviews you discover that he actually in 1979 yes there wasn't instagram there wasn't facebook but you would get word of mouth out about books being launched through print journalism through the radio and kit williams actually got very lucky with publicity and i didn't know this have a listen
0: when the book was published miracle of miracles the observer was on strike so you had to buy the sunday Times, and so was itv it was a blank screen on that night except for bbc everybody thought i had done it in some way but i hadn't
1: (laughs) And <laughs> he, brilliant, isn't he basically, you couldn't watch anything except Apart the channel, him. <laughs> except the channels where he had happened to agree to advertise his book. That really is freakishly so, fortunate, so isn't it? That is how everybody probably contributed. So did having. I a, think it took awesome everybody
2: completely by surprise how famous it got. And I suspect him more than anybody else because it was it was everywhere and for quite a long time. And I think people got close, but wasn't there... There was only one day in which all the conditions were met where you could find it or something, one day of the year. I I can't remember exactly, but I can remember it was so fascinating. But basically, if you figured
1: out the word or phrase from all of the puzzles, it directed you... it, It spelled out close by Amphil, which was where it was buried. And it was actually discovered by somebody, and this is where the story gets a little bit sad, because... It was discovered by somebody, and it ended they ended up having a sort of connection to Kit Williams, unbeknownst to him,
2: um, to, I think a former, girlfriend? Yes I think what happened is two people came incredibly close and were, had said how close they'd got you know I think they'd solved the Amphill part but hadn't quite got the final bit and then when it was found and they interviewed the man that found it then there were kind of discrepancies and nobody could figure out quite how he'd done it and yes it came from this several kind of moves away so it wasn't a, a kind of corrupt there was nothing criminal going on but there had been gossip and he'd heard gossip
1: Yeah and I think basically it says that the guy who found it had previously been in business with someone who, at the time of the discovery, was living with Williams' ex-girlfriend. And they used to go to the place where it was buried for, like, picnics and stuff.
2: Ah, uh, so she recognised it, that yeah. sense. So I sense. But, but I think even that got even more publicity, because then there were all these, you know, how did he find out? And actually, because it wasn't his fault, it didn't harm the book at all, and it just raised more and more awareness for it. I think this is all quite phenomenal as well for it to have been this
1: successful in 1979, which is something that I suppose the viral moment is something that we associate with today. Yes and social media and and that
2: ease of word of mouth. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's the kind of ups and downs. So on on the one side, the ability to get onto Facebook, Instagram, all of these different resources makes it easier to get everybody. But the fact that there are so many people trying to do the same thing, that there is so much clutter, perhaps it is actually more difficult now than it was back then where there were far fewer channels to communicate, but there was less being communicated.
1: It is an interesting one. I'm I'm inclined to think that with Masquerade it was a special one-off sort of moment. But I don't know. I mean, it's an an interesting topic why some things become incredibly successful in the literary world and some things perhaps don't catch on. People do love a treasure hunt when there is
2: good treasure involved.
1: But not... Every literary publicity stunt ends up becoming a viral sensation. Um, And with us on the line, we have Heidi Goody, author of Odd Jobs, which is part of a comedy fantasy series about an apocalypse of monsters and the annoying nine-to-five admin side of it all. Hi, Heidi. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Um, We'd like to ask you, first of all, what was your big stunt idea?
0: (laughs) So when we published Odd Jobs, it's, it's co-written. I, I co-write with Ian Grant. Um, and we always, we always knock around some ideas what we're going to do. And, um, and I came up with the idea that we would fake um, a monster sighting in Birmingham. So I, I made a fake tentacle. Uh, Birmingham's quite well equipped with canals. We have a lot of canals. And so I made a fake tentacle and I made it so that we could hang it off bridges with a fishing line. And I made it so that we could, you know, um, put a stick in the bottom and wave it around. And we we um, we, we met at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, it was a beautiful day, lovely sunshine, really fantastic light. And we took a load of photos of this tentacle emerging from the canal, emerging from the undergrowth. And we uh, we, we took a lot of photos. And what we wanted, of course, was to, to make the story go viral that, oh, Birmingham's got a
1: monster in its canal. And that's not what happened.
0: <laughs> no, it's not what happened. I mean, we got some amazing photos. The photos are so beautiful, uh, but, but it, it failed to go viral.
1: Why do you think it didn't go viral?
0: If I'm completely honest, I think we got a little bit carried away with the execution <laughs> and didn't necessarily follow it up with um, with a, a, a particularly coherent plan. Um, we, we got excited with the photos, and I think we sort of expected that if we secretly just popped them on Twitter and, and retweeted them a few times, that people would notice, and they just didn't. So, uh, so what we what we've got out of it instead is just the story of having done it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: See, that's Lightening brilliant up. in itself, particularly as you write comedy. So you've got this fantastically hilarious story of this great endeavour that didn't quite happen.
0: Exactly. It's um it, it makes our our existing fan base smile and that's 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 a good deal of what we're about actually.
1: Do you think it's harder now, particularly in the book world, than it was when Masquerade was published, to get an audience to take notice of something like this? even though we do, you know, what you set out to do was, in theory, perfect for the social media kind of rumour mill age that we live in?
0: I, I, it's a really interesting question because I think the ambition uh, of, of, of this stunt was to reach out to the entire world. Um, and, of course, the entire world doesn't read. Um, <laughs> yes. But those people who identify as readers and congregate as readers on social media, it's very easy to plug into those guys, and we, we do that a lot. So, no, I I think obviously masquerade was an amazing thing and and that that it was it was more like a cult, um, (laughs) a real sensation back in the day. But things are slightly different now. It seems to me that if you go on the Internet and and align yourself with with the readers and join reading groups, you you, you're there
1: and, and, and people can talk to you. We're going to have to leave it bare, leave it, leave it (laughs) bare, leave it there. Thank you so much, Heidi, for joining us on Talking of Books. It's been a pleasure chatting to you.
0: Thanks for having me. Bye -bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.
1: Um, Heidi Goody there, co-author of Odd Job's part of a comedy fantasy series about an apocalypse of monsters and the annoying nine-to-five admin side of everything.
2: I think she makes a brilliant point, which is rather than try and get the attention of everybody, which Mm. arguably is what Masquerade managed to do, the trick is to try and get your community's interest. I know my son loves this, I think it's a game and a TV show, it's called Gravity Falls, and they did something, and I don't even know what they did, but he was so excited and there was such a buzz in that particular particular community and apparently the sales were fantastic everybody was watching and playing who mattered parents didn't really know what was going on I only knew because of how excited Dylan was but I think that's the trick don't Ra- please all the people Don't try and please everybody because everybody's kind of cynical but please the people that are absolutely your target I think that's sage advice
0: there's just so
2: much more to hear
0: download our podcast at dubaii1038.com